Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the showdown in Ottawa. It is a tense morning on the streets of the capital today. Police have surged their numbers. Protesters are being warned. They risk the arrest, fines, imprisonment. Their vehicles could be seized. Bank accounts frozen. Their insurance suspended. Despite that, protesters digging in. Many of them saying they will not leave. It is day 21 of the truckers' blockade. Meanwhile, the Federal Emergencies Act being debated in the House of Commons. Justin Trudeau vowing to take back the streets of Ottawa. We've got an awesome panel of MPs standing by to talk about this. First, let's listen to some of the sounds this morning from Ottawa. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking a short time ago. Some protesters came to Ottawa to express their frustration and fatigue with public health measures, and that's their right. Like I said, it's a right that we'll defend in this free and democratic country. But illegal blockades and occupations are not peaceful protests. They have to stop. All right, the Conservatives vowing to vote against the Emergencies Act. Here's Conservative leader Candace Bergen. I guarantee you, Mr. Speaker, that these folks would have moved on had the Prime Minister decided he wanted to actually listen. And what I promise you is we would not be here today invoking an Emergencies Act, which is a sledgehammer on all Canadians. All right, let's discuss now with my guests. We've assembled an awesome panel for you this morning. Randeep Sarai is on the line, Liberal MP for Surrey Centre. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Randeep, thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you, Mike. Always good to be on. Thanks a lot. Also on the line, Dan Albus. Dan is the Conservative MP in the Central Okanagan, and I'm pleased to welcome Dan back. Th- Dan, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for uh, having me. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Randeep Sarai, let me go to you first. Can you please make the case for the Emergencies Act? Why is the government doing this? Well, look, it's a targeted measure. Two-thirds of Canadians, even on a recent poll, uh, suggest we need to do this. This is not about protest. This is about ending the occupation, uh, the attempted overthrow, and and even the criminal elements that have been uh, blocking uh, millions in trade across the border uh, and disrupting the lives of thousands of Ottawa-tonians uh, right here. So I think uh, this is a measured, targeted approach, and it's something uh, the government needed and uh, something that was called for. Dan Albus. Well, Mike, the first thing I think we need to point out is a very minimum. I hope we can all agree that the Emergencies Act is a particularly um, uh, serious set of legislation. Look, it's never been used for things like 9-11. It's never been used for things like OCA. And yet suddenly this prime minister suddenly says that they're placing limits on freedom of assembly as well as uh, violating guarantees against unreasonable search and seizures. When asked about it this morning, the prime minister said the measures were reasonable and just said, just trust us. The Emergency Act doesn't work that way. It's meant uh, to address urgent and critical situations that can't be effectually dealt with using any uh, other law. So look at Sarnia, Fort Erie, Emerson, Coots, Windsor, and Pacific Highway were all cleared using existing laws. So why do we need the Emergency Act for what is a local policing, policing issue here in Ottawa? Randip Sarai, what do you say to that? Well, it's something to supplement. Uh, we've been seeing foreign money coming in in, in the millions. Uh, this is this can suspend those, which otherwise these powers, the, the existing law was not able to do. Uh, uh, this gives the power to do that. Uh, this gets the power to 
take insurance, for example, away uh, for some of these vehicles that are doing it. it. It adds to the provincial and territorial authorities to help address the blockades and this occupation. And it's imperative, especially when uh, strategic infrastructure, tr- strategic corridors of trade for Canada are being imperiled. Uh, I was just listening to your radio just before, and there was news that uh, there were plans to disrupt cargo terminals at, at airports. These things disrupt not only our food supply, our security, uh, trade, but thousands and, in fact, maybe even millions of jobs that are on the line. It disrupts the lives of truckers, those that are actually protesting. The real truckers that are trying to go put food on your table, go across, they're the ones that were being stuck on the U.S. side of the border, not being able to come across and deliver goods. Uh, I met with one of their wives uh, at the airport on Monday night, said my husband hasn't gone to work for three days because these people have not been able to let his truck cross uh, and bring goods okay. back and forth. Dan, let me go to Dan Albus for his response on that. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, so first of all, there are no blockades, plural. There is a blockade in Ottawa, and this is because uh, it is a local policing issue. Last night, Ottawa City Council were uh, debating removal of the police board chair and other police board uh, directors. So this is a failure uh, to address these concerns. But, you know, there are court processes, for example, injunctions that have been placed upon them. The government could simply go to that, uh, whether it be local government, provincial or federal. Uh, and so for Randeep to suddenly say that we should that we should be able to use the Emergencies Act to handle something that has been shown Again, Sarnia, Fort Erie, Emerson, Coots, Windsor, uh, these things have been cleared. And we're BC-based MPs, Mike. You can see that we in November we had a massive protest at the Pacific LNG project. That was dealt with utilizing existing laws. Well, I so I, okay. I'm against any kind of blockades that, that inhibit critical infrastructure. We actually tried to amend government legislation to put those things in place. But really, there are provincial laws right now that can be applied by peace officers right across the country. Randy Sarai, what do you say to that? Like, why can't this be dealt with under existing laws? I mean, the police are there to do their jobs. How come they haven't been able to get this done? Well, I think there's a lot of territorial issues that happen. Uh, you take uh, uh, take Ottawa, for example. It's easy for him to say, Dan, to say, uh, you know, uh, they're changing their police chief. They're having a police board meeting. It's been three weeks. It's been three weeks of hell for people here. People have been harassed, uh, had their masks uh, uh, mocked at, sworn at, uh, uh, racial obscenities uh, done. Downtown's at a standstill. People can't go to work. The 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 city uh, has asked us for assistance. We've given assistance, but clearly they were not able to do it on their own. I think this gives another tool, and it's a charter compliant tool. It's a, uh, a it must conform to the, the the to the charter. It has debate in the house, and it's a measured response. It's for thirty days, uh, and and it will get these uh, occupiers out. And I think Dan- it's much needed. Dan Albus, your conservatives have voiced a lot of support for the truckers' cause, at least in principle, but your leader has also said it's time for the truckers to go home now. They are not going home. What happens next? Like, you're saying they should leave. What if they don't want to leave? You would condone the use of force to remove them? We're a nation of laws, and people need to respect the laws. So I'm going to defer to, to law enforcement, and quite honestly, the Solicitor General of Ontario should be the one here that be answering questions about what to do in cases of law enforcement. But look, the, the, the Randeep started talking about you know foreign interventions with, with thousands of dollars. We had the FinTrack officials come before committee last week, and they said there was no evidence of that. So this seems to be that the, the Liberals are ramping up their rhetoric on fear. 
to try to justify their actions. The prime minister has been basically missing in action, I would say, since the election, but more so since these uh, protests happened. And you know what? He's only come out to add more fuel to the fire. So, you know, we don't believe that the Emergency Act is justified. It wasn't used at OCA. It wasn't used at 9-11. And the government, when we asked for them to justify, clear aren't making the thresholds. Look, Sven Sven Robinson, a former BC-based MP, has raised concerns that his own party, the NDP, are supporting the Liberals on this. He says that you can't, you know, just utilize uh, an act because you may not like the the political, uh, the the people that, that are protesting against you. So, you know what? There are other options. The government should try to bring down the temperature so that we can deal with these issues lawfully and coolly, not adding more fuel let to me, the fire. Let me ask, let me play a clip here that got a lot of attention in the House of Commons yesterday. And Randeep, I, I especially want to get your reaction on this. This is sure. J- Justin Trudeau yesterday and an exchange with Conservative MP Mel- Melissa Lanceman. And you'll hear Trudeau, uh, his re- listen carefully to Trudeau's response here to this Conservative MP, and then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen to that. He fans the flames of an unjustified national emergency. So, Mr. Speaker, when did the Prime Minister lose his way? When did it happen? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who be able to get their lives back. Okay, okay Randeep Sarai, I, I thought that was a, a low moment for the Prime Minister yesterday to accuse the Conservatives of standing with the swastika. Do you, do you support what he said there? Well, look, uh, when, when uh, MP Cooper stood uh, with swastika flags in, the, in, the, in, in, in his background, uh, he, though he denounced it, he never apologized for going there. Subsequently, uh, Conservative caucus members went and met with the same people who are saying we want to overthrow the government. So when they come in the House, they say, oh, no, overthrowing the government is wrong, and it shouldn't be, and that's not a protest. But then they go out and meet them. Uh, other premiers, even Conservative premiers like Jason Kenney and Doug Ford, have said we should not be negotiating or talking to these people. Uh, these are occupiers. These are people disrupting the lives. They're not protesters. They're, they're okay. wanting to overthrow the government. And these conservative MPs continue to flame, put oil on the flames. They keep continuing to go out even after those acts. After that, an LGBTQ couple uh, had feces thrown at their at their place of uh, work. I went to Subways and Tim Hortons around here, and they were terrified of the way they've been treated, and therefore complying with mandates okay, let me go to and laws. Dan, let me go to Dan Albus for his response. Go ahead, Dan. This, this was directed at a Jewish woman who was asking legitimate questions. The prime minister this was, was three, at the conservative three times. Party. Hang on, Randy. Was Go. three times he was asked to apologize, and three times he he didn't do that. That is below the dignity of his office. That is below the dignity of the House of Commons. Anyone who uses that kind of language should be called out. And I would ask all Canadians to do the same. We do not deal with the issues of the Emergencies Act and how serious it is by fanning the flames. As I said earlier, unfortunately, the Liberal Party has chosen to uh, use rhetoric and to jack up fear. 
The prime minister has had town halls where there was a Nazi flag. Uh, And you know what? Those things happen in politics. Politics can be messy. But you know what? He needs to take responsibility and apologize to to, uh, someone whose family uh, were killed in the Holocaust. It's truly a despicable thing, Mike, and I just hope for decency. I'm not going to politicize this any further. We should have some standards that we all follow. Thank you, gentlemen, both of you, for being here. I appreciate the discussion. Randeep Sarai, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre. Dan Albus, Conservative MP. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about another story closer to home here this week. The toppling of the Gassy Jack statue in Gastown on Monday. This happened during the annual protest march, drawing attention to the disappearances of Indigenous women and girls protesters put some ropes around the gassy jack statue in gastown and pulled it down the statue is of john dayton he's known as gassy jack gastown was actually named after him got a great guest standing by to talk about this liberal mla ellis ross have a listen first though to this report from global news reporter krista dow For many, he served as a reminder of decades of oppression against Indigenous women and girls. But on February 14th, the man known as Gassy Jack is no longer being celebrated. I think it's it's appropriate and long overdue. The so-called father of Gastown, John Dayton, married his widow's niece, a 12-year-old Squamish girl. Critics had long called for the removal of his statue. So the taking down of this monument represents taking back our story and this is our narrative. I just can't imagine what what it would be like to be part of the First Nations community um, and and to walk these streets. Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart says while the statue was clearly a symbol of pain, violence and trauma, the actions that removed it in a dangerous way undermines the ongoing work with the Squamish Nation. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Ellis Ross, Liberal MLA for Skeena. He is the former elected chief of the Heisla First Nation, uh, recently ran for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party, finished second place. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ellis, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, Alice, this is not the first statue to be torn down. We've seen this happen before in B.C. The Gassy Jack statue comes tumbling down in Monday, on Monday in Gastown. You know, protesters who's uh, drawing attention to the disappearance of Indigenous women and girls. Uh, Alice, as an Indigenous leader, what did you think about the, that statue coming down? Well, a lot of mixed feelings because leaders, Aboriginal leaders, all across Canada, I've been trying to address the aftermath of the outdated policies from the Indian Act and the outdated policies from provincial government that actually excluded and actually put us in a place of all these social issues of exclusion, poverty, and violence, and suicides. And that's what we've been trying to address in the last 20 years, at least, with new progressive governments and attitudes. Yeah, do you think that tearing a statue, though, tearing down a statue brings us any closer to achieving the goals of reconciliation? No, it doesn't. And especially if, if what I understand, there was ongoing talks between the leaders. I mean, ultimately, missing a murdered woman is a Canadian issue. Yeah. You know, let's be clear about that. But in, in terms of what's happening down in Gastown, that's actually a specific issue between the Squamish Nation and the city of Vancouver. 
I'm sure there was talks going on at the time on how to resolve uh, that issue in terms of the symbolic nature of what that statue represented. And if those talks were happening, and it's, it's only fair to actually ask them, you know, what was the progress like? What was the conversation like? Where were you going to end up? What was the overall solution? Because if, if there's no information, you know, given to the general public about what's really going on behind the scenes, then we start to see anger. Then we start to see frustration. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what actually speaks uh, entirely, in my mind, to transparency and accountability when we're talking about our leadership. Right. The, the protesters who dragged this, pulled the statue down, saying they're, they're seeking justice, they're seeking reconciliation, they're seeking a, a better future for Indigenous people, and, and I know that that's what you want to. Um, but I just wonder if tearing a statue down actually maybe sets back that goal. I mean, this is something that Kennedy Stewart, the Vancouver mayor, said this week after the statue was pulled down on Monday. We're trying to achieve reconciliation with, with the Squamish First Nation, for example, and, and pulling the statue down doesn't help that. Uh, do you? I know you agree with that. Like, why do you think pulling a statue down like this, or taking a statue down at John A. McDonald, how does that? How is that regressive in your mind? Well, the, the, the argument that that you know tearing down your history—that's basically what you're doing. You're tearing down your history, and I've always said that. Look, instead of tearing your history apart or actually ignoring it, you know, add to that history, add to that, make another statue, put another plaque there to describe the, the, the bad things that happened. And when we're talking about reconciliation and we're talking about missing a murdered woman uh, across Canada, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, by the way, uh, this, this is part of the reason why I joined the BC Liberals in the first place. Is because I, I saw what the BC Liberals are doing, not just for protocol grandstanding or posturing or actually just uh, as a way to get elected, but behind the scenes, they were really trying to address reconciliation and First Nations independence. And really, the, the person that should be on the show to speak to, to the reconciliation efforts is actually John Rustad. Because I, I only engage with the BC Liberals in terms of what was happening in my territory as Chief Counselor. Yeah. But, but listening to what what he was doing all across BC, and including what he was doing in communities uh, to address missing and murdered women in, in BC, was was actually it was mind-boggling to me to to, to think that a, that a politician and the government was actually getting right down to the community level and talking to people and talking to families and trying to find a way not only to to address the issues but also trying to address the trauma. And That's that was that was quite remarkable to me. I'm speaking to Liberal MLA Ellis Ross, former elected chief of the Heisla First Nation, and we're talking about the statue of Gassy Jack that was toppled this week in, in Gastown. When we talk about tearing down statues, this is not the first time we've seen something like this happen. I'm always reminded of the words of Justice Murray Sinclair, who was the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada and, and a great Indigenous leader and a great Indigenous judge. And I thought one of the wisest things I ever heard him say, he was talking about this idea of t let's tear statues down. And he said, just to quote him directly, I get your thoughts, Ellis. He said, he said, quote, the problem I have with the overall approach to tearing down statues is that it's counterproductive to reconciliation because it smacks of revenge or smacks of anger. 
And I think we kind of saw that this week with this statue being torn down. People were angry. They are looking for revenge. Do you agree with that, his assessment? Uh, yeah, I agree with it. In fact, you only got to look at uh, what happened when there, there was remains found at the residential school in Kamloops. Yeah. Uh, th- there was a lot of outpouring and, and outreach from non-Indigenous people to Aboriginal people, but the anger was there. And when the anger came out, in terms of tearing down statues and throwing red paint on statues and burning down churches, a lot of Indigenous people came out, including survivors of residential schools, said, don't burn down ch- churches. Yeah. Don't right. throw blood on statues. I mean, violence is not the answer. Yeah. Protesting in a lawful manner, definitely, without a doubt. That's a right in the freedom of Canada. Without a doubt. But tearing down statues and, and erasing history instead of adding to your history, that, that, just, that, that, that just adds to the anger. It doesn't actually solve anything. Yeah. And in fact, if anything else, you know, the leaders, you really should understand that it's really up to them to actually control this and actually find a solution in a nonviolent manner. Yeah. That's really what all the leaders should be looking for. Last question for you, Ellis. Um, when we look at a, a better way forward, what do you think is a, a better path to reconciliation or a better future for everyone, but especially for Indigenous people. I know you talked a lot about this during your recent bid for the BC Liberal Party leadership. What do you think is a better way How, What do you to uh, solve these problems? Go back to what was started in BC in 2004. And from 2004 to 2017, British Columbians don't understand this, but a tremendous amount of reconciliation was carried out, especially in terms of actually uh, putting First Nations in a position where they could be independent. And there was always a great line that actually I actually took from a previous leader of, from my council that said, we want to be in a position where we can address our own issues on our own terms. And that's where we're heading. And right now, we're right back to 20 years in terms of the uncertainty, in terms of the politics, in terms of the manipulation of Aboriginal interests. I mean, uh, BC wasn't a great path. Well, definitely a great path. And you think about all the agreements that were signed in all the sectors, including environmental stewardship. And then it's all just wiped off uh, off the books now in terms of BC, where BC is heading. I think we should get back on that path, get back to the principles in terms of uh, BC as a province, BC as a society. And at the end of the day, reconciliation does mean to bring two parties back together. Yeah. At one point in our history, First Nations and non-First Nations work together. We separated over the decades. It's time to bring us back. We were on that path starting in 2004. We got to we got to find that path again. And then you know, because ever since 2017, the the issues have been coming back now and it's who knows where it's going to end. Yeah. Ellis, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. It's always great to have you on here. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let's talk about the Federal Emergencies Act now. The Justin Trudeau government giving itself extraordinary powers here to deal with the truck blockades. Among them, the power to seize the property and the bank accounts of protesters. Does that go too far? Is this government overreach? I've got a great guest standing by on that. First, have a listen here to Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland. If your truck is being used in these protests your corporate accounts will be frozen. The insurance on your vehicle 
will be suspended. The consequences are real and they will bite. All right, let's discuss these extraordinary financial powers under the Emergencies Act now. Aaron Woodrick is my guest, a director at the Domestic Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and I'm pleased to have him on the show today. Aaron, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Aaron, let's take a look at the Emergencies Act here and some of these financial powers here that allow some financial institutions to suspend or freeze bank accounts. What are your concerns here? Well, first of all, it's uh, the act itself. I think there's been a lot of commentary, and I agree that they really haven't met the threshold that's required to trigger this act. It's a very extreme law. Some would argue it's the most extreme on our books, and it really should only be invoked when there is a sort of existential threat to the territorial integrity or the sovereignty of Canada. I mean, the language in the act is quite a high bar. Um, and certainly you could maybe argue the border blockings um, constitute that, that threat, but those were actually cleared up peacefully and efficiently without the act. So it actually kind of makes the case stronger that we didn't need it. All that's left really um, is a very, very inconvenient and unpleasant, I will admit, uh, protest in downtown Ottawa, but it just doesn't rise to the level that the Act contemplates. So that's the first sort of big picture thing. With respect to the financial regulations in particular, uh, the first problem is they're very vague. Um, They order banks and financial institutions to freeze assets without a court order, and I think that's the key here. Um, There's a process for this stuff, Mike. If a government is worried that, um, you know, illicit activity or dangerous activity is being supported with money being funneled through a financial institution they can take their evidence they go to a judge they say they, they make their case the judge says right they get the order the bank freezes the money that's how it normally works they're skipping that step here they're basically just saying banks you need to freeze uh, whatever you think might be related to this and you are shielded from any legal liability after the fact no one can sue okay. you if you freeze their money appropriately okay i take your point that there's a normal process for doing something mm-hmm. like this like sink, uh, seizing financial assets but of course the government would argue that this is this is not a normal situation this is an abnormal situation with this protest blockade that is now occupied downtown Ottawa going into the third week now yep. we had the borders shut down notably the ambassador bridge for a week you know you're saying that doesn't reach that threshold but the government would say it does reach the threshold i mean when when you've got like trucks lined up around parliament blocking right outside the prime minister's office right outside the supreme court you got supreme court mm-hmm. justices going in the back door in order to avoid these protesters like, is that not an abnormal situation that requires extraordinary response? It's absolutely an abnormal situation. But again, you've got the only comparative example, which again, ironically, was was the prime minister's own father, Pierre Trudeau, in 1970. That the War Measures Act was criticized at the time and after the fact for being invoked. That was following a bombing at the Montreal Stock Exchange, the kidnapping and murder of two people, the military going to Montreal. That was all before the act was invoked. So we haven't seen that kind of level here um, with this act, which actually has a higher threshold than the War Measures Act. So look, I, I'm not saying the government should do nothing if they. They have evidence that there is uh, money flowing. They should take that evidence to a court and get the court order. But the, the reason they would argue they're using this act is because they don't have that evidence. And that's a problem because, one, um, if you don't have evidence, that that's precisely the threshold we normally require if you're trying to get a court order to freeze assets. And the other is, how would banks know? If the government doesn't have the intelligence to prove this, it's not clear to me how banks are going to be better positioned to figure out who the right people to freeze are. 
Has this already been used? Like, have any bank accounts, to your knowledge, already been suspended or frozen? I mean, we see some videos on on social media of protesters who are going to an ATM machine and going, "Whoa, I can't get into my bank account!" All of a sudden, like, is, is are these powers already being used? Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, banks are trying to figure it out. They just caught wind of this too, right? So they're putting their heads together. They've got their lawyers. Um, they haven't said much because they're they're not actually clear on how far they're supposed to go. Um, but I mean, some of the 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 thought was the intent was okay. We're not really going to go after individual donors. It's going to be more about the pot of money, right? Like the GoFundMe, the fundraisers, freeze that big pot. But as you yeah. say, there are examples now where people seem to be having problems. Um, and look, there's a potential for abuse here too, right? If you you're going to be people who are stuck in a jam because they are kind of collateral damage on this, and they're not going to have any recourse because the Emergencies Act insulates the banks from any legal liability. Speaking to Aaron Woodrick from the McDonald-Laurier Institute, and we're talking about some of the financial, extraordinary financial powers under the Emergencies Act, including the power of banks and financial institutions to seize and suspend bank accounts if they're involved with the protest. If you take a close looking here, uh, a close read, Aaron, of some of the wording here of how this is going to work. It says that institutions could take this action if they suspect an account is being used to further the illegal blockades and occupations. So it doesn't mean like you have to be, like my read of it is you don't have to be a, a trucker right on the streets of Ottawa outside the, outside the parliament buildings. Because this means that some anyone who's donated money to the, tr- the truck campaign could have their assets seized. Is that correct? Yeah, that's by the language. And I mean, yeah. again, that's the intent of invoking this act is you lower the threshold, right? Instead of proof, you need suspicion. And, and and of course, you know, with suspicion, sometimes you'll be right, but sometimes you'll be wrong. And you can imagine the, the problem for people who are actually innocent, completely innocent, have nothing to do with it, but the bank suspects, um, freezes their assets, and, you know, they miss a payment or they default on, on something. I mean, so there, there, there's going to be collateral damage as a result of this, and I think that's a legitimate concern for a lot uh, of people. That's really, I think you just outlined one of the primary jeopardies here under this is that if a bank or a financial institution gets it wrong, right? And they, they go in and they sus- suspend or freeze the bank account of maybe someone who doesn't have anything to do with it. So now they've made a mistake. What recourse would the person have who's been maybe wrongly identified? Under the wording of this these powers, there would not be any recourse, at least not to a civil court. Like you couldn't sue the bank, Right. Well, ex- exactly. And, and what that does, I mean, the intent of, of doing that, of course, is f- so the government to, to give banks confidence they won't get in trouble. But it's also right. going to make them more likely to go overboard, right? Because they're, they're, there's no downside for them to go overboard. So you, it, you, you're sort of, um, you, 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 you solve one problem and create another one. I'm, I've watched some reaction from critics on this who point to some extreme circumstances that could develop. For example, I've seen people argue that, wait a minute, what if I go on a Facebook page that supports this trucker convoy? You know, I go on their Twitter or their Facebook and I click the like button. So now I've clicked like on the trucker convoy Facebook page. Does that now qualify under, under this definition that that person is arguably furthering these blockades and occupations and therefore subject to seizure of their bank account? 
Yeah, look, that's uh, that's a sounds like a stretch, but the it, based on the broad language in the act, it's possible, right? You can further things in more that way than one. And if we're going to take the leap from proof of donation to suspected donation to maybe sympathetic to making a donation, um, yeah. I think that's possible. And I just look, I understand people have strong views for or against this protest, but we can't let that color um, the, the the law that's being used here. The best way to think of it is: imagine yourself with a shoe on the other foot. Would you be as comfortable with this if it was a protest you know if you don't support it that you did or vice versa i think that's the real problem here it, it's yeah. not the specific protest it's the the the, the awesomeness of the powers what, being used what about someone who let's say made a donation to the trucker convoy let's say three weeks ago before the yeah. blockade started and maybe they thought maybe they thought okay i support their cause i'm going to give them some money i'm going to go on one of these sites and donate to them and then it turns into this block, these illegal blockades that they didn't think was going to happen. I mean, would that be maybe they think, well, I don't support these these blockades, but I gave them money in good faith, thinking they weren't going to break the law it was going to be a peaceful, legal protest. Would that be any recourse to someone who has their bank account frozen? Well, not right now. Not right now. But and I think you've just described a good chunk of the people who donated money. I don't believe that the vast majority of donors want to see the government overthrown or things like this. I think that there's a good chunk of them just thought, you know what, I don't like vaccine mandates and good for them. I'll send them a hundred bucks. And the result is going to be, um, you know, and and we're never mind the emergency act. You've maybe heard about the the hacking of the data and the sort of doxing of some of these individuals. I mean, we got a there's a gelato shop owner in Ottawa who's had threats of bricks through her window and had to close her shop because she gave 250 bucks three weeks ago i mean it's it's getting out of control uh it's you know i'm hoping somehow optimistically that we can lower the temperature and all of this right. but it's definitely tense times here in the capital last question for you aaron speaking of the hacking of some one of the donation websites and we've had names of people and people have been identified they've given money to the trucker convoy a lot of there's been analysis done too, uh, where that money is coming from. And it appears that a large chunk of it, maybe more than 40% or close to half, half the money is coming from the United States. And mm-hmm. that is obviously of, of concern to the government if they're uh, foreign funding of illegal yep. blockades seeking to shut down international borders. Is that a, a reasonable argument for these extraordinary powers? I think if we're going to be concerned about foreign funding, that's absolutely a legitimate thing for governments to be worried about, but they need to be worried about it all the time. And this is not the first protest that has seen foreign funding. And so I'm all for rules. Again, um, transparency, I think, is the most important thing, uh, but they need to be applied all the time. You can't just pick the protests you don't like and focus on it. you got to do it for all of them. Aaron, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Okay, thank you. Aaron Woodrick there, Director of the Domestic Policy Program.